Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 31st edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We would like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Omelia, creators of the Digital War Room platform for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is e-discovery, why you should go native. Sharon and I are happy to welcome as our guest, the legendary computer forensics and e-discovery expert, Craig Ball, who just can't decide what he wants to be when he grows up. He's a board-certified advocate, adjunct professor of law at the University of Texas in Austin, certified computer forensic examiner, court special master, and author of the Ball in Your Court column in Law Technology News, and of a blog of the same name. After years of using technology to win cases for his clients, he now helps courts and lawyers grapple with electronic evidence. Well, that was a mouthful, but welcome, Craig. We're glad to have you here. Hi, John. Hi, Sharon. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for uh, responding positively to our requests once again, Craig. It is a joy. And I know that you have just returned from a week teaching e-discovery at the Georgetown Law Center's annual e-discovery training academy in Washington, D.C. And I followed it all through Tom O'Connor's uh, post on Facebook. So how did your week go? Well, it was great. It was the best academy in years. Imagine three dozen really bright, engaged people, about two-thirds of them lawyers, dedicating a full week of their busy lives to studying the intersection of technology and e-discovery law. I mean, it's really unlike anything in continuing legal education. I mean, these people get exams, a workbook of exercises, extensive daily reading, and real-world problems they have to solve. So it's a tiny faculty likewise committed for the entire week. And I feel like the students left with newfound confidence in e-discovery and with some fresh eyes for ESI. That's great. Well, Craig, you know, for years, you, you've urged the legal community to stop converting electronic evidence from native forms to TIFF images and load files for production and discovery. And, you know, we've been advocates of that as well. But can you tell the listeners what TIFF conversion is and, and what load files are? In its simplest terms, TIFF conversion is printing stuff out. But instead of printing electronic information to thin sheets of rolled, dried wood pulp we call paper, it's printing to digital photographs called tagged image file formats, or TIFF. Load files are ancillary or accompanying files that go along with those photographs, carrying parts of the electronic original for the purpose of trying to put Humpty Dumpty all back together in order to mimic some of the innate functionality of the original. So, John, imagine going to a steakhouse and ordering a big, juicy porterhouse, but all they bring out from the kitchen is a postcard with a black and white photo of a steak on one side and a message scrolled on the back saying, steak tastes great. When the bill comes, they charge you 500 bucks. Now, I wouldn't eat there, would you? <laughs> <laughs> I love no, it. And I Never, never, never have heard that sort of imagery before, but I do love it too. That's a lot cleaner though. You don't get a mess on your shirt. <laughs> there is that. So you, you're describing now 
how most parties have exchanged electronic evidence in the past and today. And I know that we hear all the time that there are a gazillion reasons why people shouldn't go native. And the question that they're always asking us is why move from the tried and the true? Well, there really aren't a gazillion. There are only a handful. And you'll hear the same hackneyed reasons trotted out again and again. Simply, you want to go native because it's cheaper and it's better. Native production is cheaper by far at every step of the e-discovery process because native eliminates much of the cost and complications of conversion. And crucially, in a world where we pay for processing, ingestion, and hosting by the gigabyte, native files are substantially smaller in byte volume than bloated TIFF images. So where a vendor charges by the gigabyte to ingest and host, you're talking, Sharon, like half as expensive or 20 times less expensive because of TIFF bloat. And this is a savings you recover replicated every month if you're hosting because the lower storage is lower cost. So it's better on so many levels. Native data is inherently complete. It's inherently searchable. It's inherently functional. And you can't say that about TIFF and load files because native represents the form or forms in which data is used in the ordinary course of business. Native is the most defensible form of production as well. To borrow a page from Apple marketing, native just works. So to understand why TIFF is with us demands a little bit of history. Back in the 1980s, which some listeners may actually have experienced, as you and all, all of us <laughs> have, when most information subject to discovery was on paper, grafting electronic searchability onto paper documents was a great leap forward. To do it, paper documents were scanned, and their textual content was extracted using optical character recognition. Paper documents were also manually coded or abstracted to foster search. Then the goal began to take all these disparate, as I call them, humpty-dumpty pieces of information, like page Im images, extracted text, abstracts, codes, etc., and put all that back together again in databases called review platforms. Now, concordance and summation are probably two of the most familiar of the old good old day tools of that sort. In that proto-digital era, before the internet, searching records and deposition transcripts and such using keywords was what passed for new and exciting in law practice. Well, that and having a thermal fax machine, if you remember. <laughs> yeah, those curled up things with the burnt edges. <laughs> exactly, and now, and now blank pages. So TIFF images were just pictures of pages, much like paper photocopies, and they offered no means to carry the OCR, the codes, the abstracts, and all the other things that made for searchability. So you had to pair the pictures with the somewhat searchable extracted text and that required the use of additional files to hold the extracted data for the purpose of loading it into the database called a review platform. So not surprisingly, those files used to load the data became known as, what do you imagine? Oh, I bet they were called load files. Bing, 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 give that man a cutie file, exactly. So that was all the state of the art when the alternative was no electronic searchability at all. It was a clunky system but it was better than reading it all on paper. So we had no better way to keep track of pages then than by stamping a Bates number on every page. This tried and true process, as you called it, was only tried and true because we had nothing better. It was awful. I mean, it was cumbersome. It was error-prone, expensive. But we put up with it because it was better than nothing. And as I like to say, a stone axe 
is better than no axe at all. But to wrap this history up, in the intervening 30 years, everything changed. Virtually all information came to be born on paper. Less than a tenth of 1% of it would ever be printed. So paper communications and postal delivery gave way to email transmission. Information became electronically searchable innately with near-perfect accuracy compared to funky, fuzzy OCR. Information moved past paper, but we as a profession, as lawyers, didn't. So law firms who'd invested in 30-year-old technologies and 30-year-old workflows didn't want to change. But our clients don't convert electronic information to TIFF to work with them. They'd have to close their doors if they did anything as backward as that. But the legal profession, the lawyers, stayed comfy cozy with TIFF, and we refused to keep pace, continuing to essentially print everything out before looking at it and cost be damned. So today we speak of TIFFing not as tried and true, but we should speak of it as tried and failed. Interestingly, you two, one change we have seen that's, I think, a very important indicator is that producing parties now tend not to incur the bruising cost of TIFF conversion until they make production. TIFF is no longer good enough for them, but they still lobotomize the data for production to their opponent. Now, it's odd to me that we don't call that out as dirty pool, like we did when opponents shuffled paper productions before they sent them out. Mm-hmm. That, that's very true, but you've, you've kind of made that case, but you recently published an article called The Case Against Native. So why were you laying out a case in support of TIFF and load files? Well, I, I, truthfully, I guess you could say it's sort of a reverse psychology. <laughs> I, I realized that lawyers wedded to TIFF productions weren't reading articles, weren't looking for a way to move forward. They were looking for a way to defend their status quo. So I outlined the arguments that they routinely advance in support of TIFF, and then I outlined how the other side would debunk them. Now, lawyers are very smart. I believe that. And they hate being on the losing side of any issue. So my hope was that if they saw that they were on the wrong side of where it's all going, they'd want to make their way to the winning side. And in fact, I'm finding that many are starting to listen. They needed to see that the arguments they were advancing against native productions look foolish when they're challenged in earnest before a savvy judge. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I really would encourage everybody to read the article because it does lay it all out. And especially if you have resistance from within your law firm uh, or within your company, if you're in-house counsel, it's very helpful to have that, that article to just pass around because you will hear some absolutely ridiculous arguments, the one that Craig debunks from some of the vendors who are trying to sell you stuff you don't need. So what, what are some of the arguments that are advanced in support of converting productions to TIFFs? And one that you hear all the time is you can't Bates label native files. Well, that's just not true. But that seems to be the single scariest aspect of moving to native for nearly all the lawyers I talk to. But Sharon, of course you can Bates label native productions, and of course you can include protective legends. You just have to apply them in ways that make sense, considering the form of the information and where you are in the litigation process. I mean, most ESI we deal with in e-discovery is not divided into pages. Emails don't have pages. Spreadsheets are rarely paged for printing and so forth. The notion of the physical printed page is something of a relic. You label ESI in the same manner in which you already label ESI, by using file names, except now you'll include a unique identifier that serves the same purpose once served by an embossed page number. And here's the epiphany. You will have your embossed base identifier, your protective legend, legend 
and your beloved page number on every printed page when and if you need printed pages, such as for a deposition or as an exhibit to a pleading. Now, when I say that to attorneys, their eyes tend to get really big like saucers and they say, you can do that? And I say, sure, why not? (laughs) Because when I tell them how to do it, they so want to say why it can't work. It just seems too simple. They've so long believed their boats are going to sail off the edge of the earth if they go to native production. (laughs) It's like it's an article of faith. It's heresy. (laughs) <laughs> can can you expand a little bit more, Craig, on, on how you would actually handle protective, protective legends and, uh, and reference page documents in, in the proceedings, kind of the, maybe some of the mechanics? Absolutely. I think it starts by realizing that no one uses all items produced in discovery at depositions or in proceedings. We use, at best, a tiny fraction of what's produced. And any veteran trial lawyer will tell you that if you can't reduce your case to a handful of exhibits, you're likely to lose. So the key to realizing the greatest savings and efficiencies of native production is deferring the need to convert ESI to page format until the last possible moment and for the smallest possible subset of production. That is, you wait until you need to use items in depositions or as exhibits, and then you bait only those items. Let me, let me tell you how that works. When you need something tangible to hand to a witness or attach to a motion, then and only then, You print the item to a page format. You emboss the identifier for the file that ties it to its native source, and ta-da, you add the page number that will be used to reference the content. Now, this is all done per a simple agreed-upon or court-ordered protocol. Now, since you have changed the form of the evidence by printing it, it becomes your responsibility to furnish a set with the page numbers you've assigned. Now, that can be paper or PDF or whatever but you give a set with your page numbers. It will have the native identifier. So the potential for confusion is nil, but the savings are huge. Discovery happens in almost every case, but trials are rare as hen's teeth. When you can defer the form conversion, you reap consistent savings, both in terms of -of out-of-pocket costs for conversion, for ingestion, for hosting, and in terms of avoiding costly fights brought by request parties who are tired of the tilted playing field brought about by TIFF and load file production. Now, I'm going to ask a, a question that is kind of out of order here, John. I know we need to go to break in a minute, but it seems to me the next question is what you've partially just answered, and maybe you have more to add to it, and, and that was, you know, are there simple ways to add the information to printed version using proceedings or as exhibits? Is, is there more about that you want to say than what you have said, Craig? I do, but I didn't know if you wanted to go to break first. No, you can go ahead and answer that one now, then we'll hit our break. Well, there are simple and inexpensive ways to both affix unique identifiers and protective legends to files produced and to emboss those identifiers and those protective legends and page numbers to electronic productions when converted for use in proceedings. Now, here's how that works. For the first part, that's the giving the unique identifiers to the file. We take advantage of the ease with which we can change a file's name without altering its content. We don't want to change content because we want to be able to use powerful and inexpensive processes like hashing to deduplicate and cull data. So just as we now do with TIFF and load file productions, we record the native file's true name to a table and change the file's name that you're going to produce to the unique identifier. Because file names can be quite long, for example, up to 255 characters in Windows environments, 
we can incorporate a protective legend in the name if needed. Now, anyone who receives that file receives its item identifier and its protective legend. Now, certainly, I'll go ahead and, and make the devil's advocate argument. That can be removed. Somebody could change the file name. But it's always been easy to remove embossed base numbers and protective legends on TIFF. The protection afforded by TIFF has always been illusory. You created TIFFs by shrinking pages and printing base numbers in the gutter of the smaller page. It's always been easy to expand the image on a copy or a scanner to do away with the gutter and get rid of the protective legend and the base number. But then as now, you had to rely upon protective orders to ensure that copies like that are not disseminated without the requisite identifiers. I don't want to plug products, but there's software out there that can change file names in bulk and add protective legends and increment Bates numbers, and it's easy to come by, and some of them are even free. So as to getting the unique identifier, the protective legends and the page numbers, onto the printed versions, virtually every printing application I see, including the ones right on your desktop now, support the ability to add a header or footer to the printed page that includes the name of the file being printed. Now, since that file name has the unique identifier and has the protective legend, it goes right onto every page accompanied by your newly added page number. And this is where the mind boggles. Can it really be that easy? Well, in fact, it is. You just have to employ a protocol where everyone who prints the evidence adheres to the same simple, cheap, automated process. No one has to buy anything. And most won't have to hire anyone to do it, do it. And that's the ultimate beauty of this. Even a lawyer can do it without help and late at night on the eve of a deposition. <laughs> I have to ask you as we go to break, how is it that the benchmark of idiot-proof technology became even a lawyer can do it? I think we need to fix that. <laughs> I think too many people believe that's a proverb. That, that's a truism for all times. <laughs> Too bad we don't have a commercial that goes with that. Um, <laughs> before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Omelia, creators of the digital war room platform for e-discovery. Do you need to strategize, review and produce documents for litigation, government investigations, or HSR second requests in a single e-discovery tool for every size and every type of matter? Digital War Room eliminates costly pre-processing of collected documents, realizing savings of 80% or more, and giving you greater control over e-discovery. Experience end-to-end e-discovery on your Windows desktop, on your internal network, or in our hosted review center. Download a free trial of Digital War Room Pro at www.digitalwarroom.com. That's digitalwarroom.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking to Craig Ball, a lawyer and computer forensics and e-discovery expert, about why we should be going native in e-discovery. Craig, before the break, we were talking about producing things in TIFF and in native and, and all that, and, and some of the arguments that, that the lawyers are using. But 
um, you started to get into a little bit about the the arguments that the opponents uh, have about going native in that they they're afraid that you're going to actually alter the evidence. How do how do you respond to that? That's a, not a new argument. I mean, at least not since the invention of liquid paper and copiers. In fact, I've heard a rumor that there were twelve commandments before Moses whited out a couple that didn't care for. <laughs> That's true or not? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to know what they were, Craig. <laughs> what, was that was that correction tape or, or whiteout? <laughs> I think it was thou shalt not blog and thou shalt not tip, but I'm not sure. <laughs> think about our current method of detecting altered documents. We put a page of the questionable document on top of our pristine copy, and we hold them up to a bright light looking for differences. Wow, that's high tech. Or else we have to painstakingly <laughs> review each page. Production of native forms makes it easier to spot altered documents because you'll calculate hashes on what you produce. And if hash values don't line up, you can easily demonstrate alteration. There will always be a touchstone original production out there to turn to. And those hash values will keep both sides honest. Were anyone to try to introduce an altered version of the proceeding, you'd see the document identifier on the proffered item, and you'd be able to immediately check the electronic original. You'll do this faster than pulling your copy from your files. You'll do it on the fly and right in the depot or hearing. So avoiding inadvertent alteration will require everyone to know a little bit about prudent evidence handling. But is it really too much to expect lawyers to know the basics of not destroying evidence? So here's lesson number one. Just because it's produced in native forms doesn't mean you use native applications to review it. And you wouldn't put paper productions in your copier in place of copy paper and then wonder why they get messed up. And that's the most common misconception I see. Requesting parties seem to think that if they get native production, they then have to open it in Word or PowerPoint or Excel, and that's slow and clunky, and they change the document. But instead, you'll use a viewer. Viewers are inexpensive and fast, and they don't alter the evidence. Mm -hmm. Very simple if you think about it, but then there is that argument about lawyers again. <laughs> so if we don't convert evidence to TIFF, aren't producing parties leaving in material that their lawyers will now have to review? Yes, indeed. And we call that, here in Texas, content or evidence. <laughs> it's a lawyer's job to be aware of the content of potentially responsive ESI and to review it if it might be privileged or otherwise sub not subject to discovery. I mean, that's what we do. That's our job. And it's a marvel to me that as people began to use collaborative features of applications to communicate, lawyers somehow decided that they could just Erase these communications with impunity by labeling them metadata. It's not, folks. It's content. It's what the users added to the file. So a comment between authors in a Word document isn't much different than an email between them. It's discoverable. Computers don't seek out lawyers for advice, and computers don't share confidential information for the purpose of securing legal advice. That's the definition of privilege. People do that. So comments and tracked changes and hidden cells and rows and speaker notes and animations and all the other things routinely stripped away or rendered incomprehensible by TIFF imaging, these are part and parcel of the discoverable content of modern electronic evidence. We can't just make it disappear 
or pretend it wasn't there. Yet that's what lawyers have been doing. So surely we can't have expected that obstructive practice to endure for much longer. So put simply, if your firm's tools and methods are so antiquated that you can't see the content of what your clients use to communicate and may need to be produced in discovery, it's time to embrace new tools and methods. We can't see it, so you can't see it. It's just crazy. <laughs> but these, these are the same lawyers, remember, that we read about recently that when asked to take a Word document and turn it into a PDF, um, took, <laughs> took the Word document, printed it, and brought it to the scanner <laughs> because they didn't know about the print the PDF button in Word. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? I mean, the most strident objection I get to native production is our firm reviews in TIFF, so we can't match back to the native forms for production once we've done our review. In other words, I don't care if your people have steel and glass, we only have mud and straw, so all must live in mud huts. <laughs> you know, you, you are very good at finding imagery, <laughs> although you haven't yet come up with food. So we're waiting for the food. Go ahead, John. <laughs> well, well, Craig, let's let's turn a little bit to, to redaction of privilege and confidential material from, from native files. And I, I think I know where this is going to go, but uh, how, how do you deal with the argument that's saying, well, yeah, but redacting is actually going to change that file? Ah, uh, yes. That's true. Redacting changes the file. And I would have to ask our listeners, um, what were you trying to do with redaction if not change the file? <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, that's why we redact. Look, some yes, native, I think that is a rhetorical question. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. Some native forms, like Adobe PDFs or Excel spreadsheets, are really quite good candidates for what we'll call native redaction. But for the most part, native redaction is a tough sell. I acknowledge that for the moment. Fortunately, redaction typically implicates just a tiny percentage of the overall production. And because it's so tiny a component, I tend to say, look, if you want to redact using TIFF and furnish OCR and load files for that small component of the production, have a party. Go ahead. If I need native for a redacted item, we'll deal with it on an ad hoc basis for cause shown. And I find that works. I mean, my credo mm -hmm. is this. Don't let the redaction tail wag the production dog. If the only parts of the production my opponents are going to screw up severely is the stuff they were going to hack to pieces anyway through redaction, I'm content to realize the efficiencies and functionality and utility of native production for the rest of it and be Mr. Nice Guy on redaction. Well, I, I realize now that I have accused you of something unjustly because you did, in fact, mention steak. So what you're really missing is a rock and roll group. So that you can find, figure out for the last answer. So do we have to choose to go all native or all TIFF? We do not. Thankfully, the rules of civil procedure speak to specifying the form or forms of production, in recognition of the fact that there is no universal form of production that's suited to all types of ESI. So when I speak of native forms, I'm not always referring to the actual file format used in the source application. For example, I wouldn't expect a litigant to produce the entire content of an exchange email database in its native EDB format if the entire database wasn't relevant. Instead, I'd expect to receive a near-native format, like a PST, 
single message MSG or EML or some other agreed upon form that preserves the complete informational payload of the item produced in a functional, fielded format that fairly allows me to do with the data what my opponent can do with the data. That makes for a level playing field. So if I want native or near native, I should get it because that's how the opposing party keeps and uses the data. If the parties jointly decide to produce in TIFF and load files and their clients have made an informed choice to bear the much higher cost, I should add, I say let them eat TIFF because (laughs) maybe we get a benefit to going one way for email, another for office productivity files, and a third for database content. You know, it's not a two-way street. Well, pardon me, it is. It is a two-way street. It works both ways. Producing parties shouldn't have to pay huge sums to convert productions to forms they don't natively use. Producing parties should be free to say, here it is in the form in which we use it. We will explain it to you, but we aren't going to pay to make pablum out of it for you. If you want TIFFs, you make TIFFs at your cost. So you're saying we should all get along, and I'll help you with the the, the uh, group name and the lyrics. How about Jeff Rotal, and we should all get along and go bungle in the jungle? Will that do? Uh, it'll do. I'm still not clear on the steak and the rock coop. You're going to have to explain that to this because in your last in your last um, podcast with us, you had M um, and M's, <laughs> and who was the rock group? Van Halen. Van Halen, right? Who had the different colored M and M's? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we we remembered that about you, the food and rock group. So we've now we've now given our listeners both. <laughs> so, so now we all- have listeners go, go back and to the complete recorded works of me in the past. Poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as good as you are at coming up with all these expressive things, I'm not surprised that you forget a few along the way. But they were very memorable to us. But we do want to thank you again because that article really is sensational. People should read that. Um, it is wonderful to pass around. And it's always wonderful to talk to Craig, to listen to him on any of his, uh, his, his lectures, his CLEs, because he is phenomenal about taking something, which by its nature is a little hard to listen to over a long period of time. And he makes it extremely colorful. And we never miss a chance to listen to Craig ourselves yep. when we're in the, the same city and have that opportunity. So, Craig, thank you once again for joining us and being our guest. It's always a wonderful pleasure. Thank you, John. Thank you, Sharon. And congratulations, Sharon. You're being invested as the president of the Virginia State Bar next week. All of your friends are extremely proud of you. We know you're going to be the best president in Virginia history. And that would mean like being like better than Thomas Jefferson, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't aspire to all that, but, but I do thank you, my friend. Well, well, and, and Craig, and you, you'll probably appreciate that to, to prepare Sharon, we've been watching uh, all the past episodes of North and South. <laughs> so that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find more about Sensei's Digital Forensics, Technology, and Security Services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.